going back to Adam and Eve, the universal longing for paradise and the search for God is something that is innate to everybody, not just Jews and Christians. Welcome to the Breakthrough of Grace podcast, a place where we share the stories of ordinary lives transformed by God's extraordinary graces. We invite you to join us as our speakers talk about their journey towards living lives of rich Christian authenticity to encourage and inspire each one of us. We are thankful you're here and taking this time to spend with us. In the second chapter of the book of Isaiah, the prophet writes, And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Welcome, friends, to this episode of the Breakthrough of Grace podcast with a talk by Steve Caracas. Steve is the founder of JMJ Youth based in Phoenix, Arizona, JMJ being the initials of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Steve has, for over two decades, been making, planning for, and leading pilgrimages for people of all ages to the holy places of the Christian world. As a seasoned traveler, but more still as a wisdom-filled soul who knows the Lord, Steve's talk is brimming with insights, invitation, and inspiration about man and woman's search for God. Steve teaches from his own first-hand experiences how, in making pilgrimage, in traveling and prayerfully journeying in that search, God meets us there and grants us his graces. As you will hear, Steve is not just a teacher and a planner. He has the eyes of the kingdom to see with. And he witnesses to how people are changed by pilgrimage on account of their encounters with Jesus Christ. This talk was recorded on campus at John Paul the Great Catholic University in Southern California. We hope it blesses you as much as it did us. I was asked to come and speak about my experiences. Um, my experience has a lot to do with World Youth Day. So World Youth Day is an event, and we'll talk about specifics about World Youth Day, but it's, uh, it's a large gathering. It's a pilgrimage. And so really the question is, well, what is a pilgrimage and why, why are we going on pilgrimages? And so I was looking back and thinking, you know, how far back does this go? And it turns out it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. As soon as they were evicted from, the, from paradise, they were sent into exile. And since that time, they've been, they've been searching. We've been searching and trying to find our way back. And so it wasn't just original sin wasn't the only thing we inherited from our first parents. It was our longing for paradise. And it was our search for God, which is why there's a universal character to those things. As we make a pilgrimage in life, it, our life is a pilgrimage because we're living in exile. Um, but a pilgrimage that we make is a representation of that. It's a physical journey. It's a physical representation of what we're experiencing in a spiritual life. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church puts it this way, uh, pilgrimages evoke our earthly journey toward heaven and are traditionally very special occasions for renewal and prayer. And so I was thinking about this. Abraham was, was in Ur and things were actually going pretty well for him living there in exile, right? And so, but God was like, okay, you're too comfortable. I'm going to take you out of your place and send you to the promised land, right? Where things are going to be hard. <laughs> and so he did that. And then um, over time, you know, the, uh, the Israelites ended up in Egypt and things got very comfortable in Egypt. 
and, and they were living in exile, but things got comfortable in exile. And so God's like, all right, I'm going to take you out of there, send you back to the promised land again, right? And they didn't like it. They, they've kind of fought that. It was a little bit against their, um, their, their seeking, their desire for comfort and security. But it wasn't the only time because they were taken also out of the, the promised land uh, in exile into Babylon. And they actually did better there in Babylon. They, they were faithful. They had more zeal. And they were finally sent back to the promised land. But the universal call on a pilgrimage. So going back to Adam and Eve, the universal longing for paradise and the search for God is something that is innate to everybody, not just uh, Jews and Christians. Um, Hindus uh, go on pilgrimage, Muslims go on pilgrimage, almost every native tribe in the world, and I say almost because I'm not sure about all of them because I don't know everything, but they all have holy places. And they all set aside holy sites and they all would go to their holy places because it's deeply embedded in our character. So then the question is, Jesus came in the fullness of time and revealed himself to us. And so we have the fullness. We found him. So why then do we still go on pilgrimages if we already found him? And the answer is because not all who wander are lost. It's not because we are still searching for God, but that our desire for God is insatiable in a sense. The knowledge of God is a mystery. And a mystery is not something that you can't know. It's something that you can endlessly know and never get to the bottom of it. So you can know God more and more and more. Like the ocean, you could swim further and further and further and never get you know, to the other side or swim down in the middle and never get to the bottom. Because God is like that ocean uh, and, and he's actually bigger than the universe in that sense. You could continue on. So the saints knew this, right? The mystics, those who were closest to God and just had this burning desire for more, right? And God will satiate that desire, right? In time, in everyone, everyone who has that desire. So there's that universal call um, and there's that call for those, even those who have found God to seek him further. And this is what, um, when we're taking pilgrimages with young people, some people are starting at the point where they, they don't really even have a relationship with God yet. And that's everybody in the beginning, right? Everybody starts at that point. And so our pilgrimage for young people is to start getting them kick-started in that relationship with God. And the question is, how, how do you get to know God? Like, how do you even know that he's real? And once you know that, then how can you open your heart to the grace of God? Like, how do you do that? And for a young person, or for anyone who hasn't, but especially for a young person, you know, those are big questions, and they're, they're fairly simple answers, but they've just never, it's never come across that before. So pilgrimages create a powerful experience or powerful opportunity for them to, to experience, to encounter God outside of the classroom, outside of their normal life, um, take them away somewhere else to a foreign place um, so that their eyes are wide open and their hearts are open also for the experience. So... In my own experience, I was 18 years old and I um, went on an accidental pilgrimage. I was traveling around Europe for three months, uh, backpacking. I had really very little, couldn't afford um, to stay in places like youth hostels, way too expensive. So it was mostly uh, just slumming it, sleeping on trains and train stations on beaches. You know, I had enough money for food and um, a little bit of local transportation in the cities and that's it. So I visited a lot of churches because they were free. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't go to Mass, unfortunately, at the time. I was just seeing all these amazing things and not really understanding what was going on there. So this was in 1989. So it was, um, I, before internet, before cell phones. Um, 
So I called my parents. I called home once in the middle of summer and I told him, I told my parents, I told my dad I was going to go to Hungary because I thought he would be really excited. My father was born in Hungary. Uh, he had never been back since they had left as um, refugees after World War II. And they couldn't go back because of the communist uh, government takeover. My grandfather was an officer in the army and they would, they would kill him if you know, he came back. So family members couldn't go back. I was okay because I wasn't on the books in, uh, in Hungary. They didn't know about me. So I called home and I said, I want to go to, uh, I'm going to go to Hungary. And I thought he'd be so excited because all my life I heard, you know, they were Hungarians and they were other people. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and all the wonders of, of the Hungarians and all the things they had done. I, I thought everybody knew, but apparently not. So he said, oh, that's nice. That's great. But when you're there, you'll be really close to Yugoslavia. You really have to go to, to Medjugorje. There's a shrine over there and, and things are happening over there. And I said, uh, well, I, I can't. My rail pass doesn't go there. I don't have any money. And he said, well, send money. I was like, really? How much money? <laughs> my budget was $10 a day at the time. And he said, we'll send $500. So I was like, wow. Okay, yes. Oh, yeah, we'll definitely go there. <laughs> I had heard about the Dalmatian coast. So along um, Split and Dubrovnik, supposedly I had heard the most beautiful coastline in the world where chalk white mountains go into the uh, blue-green sea. And it's just stunningly beautiful. So I thought, well, I'll go to this place, Medjugorje, for a day. And then I'll um, head off to the beach for a week and check that out. So I get to Medjugorje, and it was still communist at the time, um, difficult to get to. I wasn't on uh, some a tour or a bus. There was nothing organized or planned. So I'm taking local trains, local buses. You know, ladies are holding on to their chickens as you're driving, you know, into the villages. And I get there, and I spend one night, and I thought, okay, well, there's nothing to do here. Right? There's nothing to do in this town. The only thing people do here is pray. And, um, well, I haven't been to Mass all summer, so... How about I go to Mass in the morning, and then I'm out of here. So I go to the English-speaking Mass, which was at 10 or 10.30 in the morning, and it was packed. So I get in there, and, and people get out from the 9, nine o'clock Mass. Everybody crams in there. So I'm sitting in there cramped, and it's, it's over, filled to overflowing. It's mid-August of 1989. So I was looking around, and there are people who were acting all strange and weird, and they, some people were crying, and some people like had their hands up, and some people were like lying prostrate on the floor. And uh, it started making me very uncomfortable. And I thought, what, what am I doing here? Why am I here? What do you want from me, Lord? And then, you know, it was for the first time in my life, at age 18, I really cried out and spoke to God. I asked him that question, what do you want from me? And why did you bring me here? And then I heard that they were singing some song. I don't even know what part of the mass it was because I wasn't paying attention to anything except all these nuts, you know, that were lying around uh, and, you know, sitting around me here. And I hear these words, and they're words I had heard before growing up, because it was a song I'd heard in my life, but they were kind of seared into my heart. Here I am, Lord. Is it I, Lord? I have heard you calling in the night. I will go, Lord, where you lead me. I will hold your people in my heart. And at that moment, all those words were like seared onto my heart. And then I, I realized at the moment, I felt the presence of God. I was like a building with all the windows and doors wide open and a strong wind blowing through, shaking me to my very foundation. And I knew number one, God was real. Number two, God is present right before me here. And number three, I need to make a decision. God gave me a choice, choose him and change my life or forget the whole thing happened and run as far away as fast as I can and try to hide, <laughs> try to get away from God. 
And I kind of looked out over the landscape and I saw people chasing, in, in life, people chasing things, people chasing money, people chasing whatever it was they were chasing. And it all led to despair. And I looked at what God was offering. No comfort, no security, but a wild, wild adventure with him, right? All the way to the end. And so I chose him. In that moment, I chose him. And then, kind of uncontrollably, I, I started crying as well. And I looked like one of those nutty people <laughs> in the church there. That was me at that point. And it was, it was a turning point in my life. And I spent the next week there wandering around the fields, just wondering what happened. And what am I supposed to do now? Because, you know, being catechized in the 70s, I knew virtually nothing <laughs> about our faith. So it took me a while. It took me uh, even a couple of years to realize what, I, how, you know, what, what is this faith and how do I live it? The one thing I did know was how to pray the rosary. And so that's something that, that I had learned. And so I prayed the rosary every day. And I, I figured the Blessed Mother wouldn't steer me wrong. Uh, she would lead me to the truth. And then it was a process of learning, of going through. Um, at one point, I realized I was sitting there in mass and I thought, oh, yeah, I remember back in second grade, the nuns told me that if, you're, if you haven't been in confession and you committed a mortal sin, you shouldn't be going to communion. I hadn't been in confession at, at this point. Still, it had been years. And so it didn't give me the courage to go to confession, but it definitely gave me the courage not to go to communion because <laughs> I couldn't figure that one out. I was like, oh, I got to confess all my sins. And it's been years. Um, and so it took me a while to get up that courage to go to confession, which I did. But all those little things that the, I was taught in second grade started coming back to me. And that's kind of the beginning of where I started remembering and, um, what I had been taught. So things were going much better um, through college because, because of that experience, searching for God. And by the end, um, when I was 22 in 1993, I was asking God, well, what am I supposed to do with my life here? Because um, I was studying to be a pilot, a commercial pilot. And I was going through all of the flight training. Um, I had a degree in math and physics aviation um, from the university. And the, the problem was there was a recession. Uh, there was the Gulf War happened in the early 90s. Then there was a recession and airlines were going out of business. And there were tens of thousands of unemployed pilots. And I'm graduating with this degree that's, that's useless at the moment. And so I was asking God every day, what am I supposed to do with my life when I graduate? What's my mission in life? You know, this, is, this isn't working. So I woke up right around New Year's that year of 1993. And I woke up with this clear answer that God had given me. It wasn't a vision or a dream, but it was as clear as day. I woke up with the answer in my head. And God said to me, I felt God said, go to World Youth Day in Denver. And there you will meet someone who will be with you for the rest of your life. And I thought, wow, what's World Youth Day? <laughs> because in those days, <laughs> before the internet... <laughs> Before mass communication, you had to like read a newspaper or watch TV, which I didn't really do. I had probably seen a poster in the back of the cathedral. Um, you know, maybe they were taking a youth group or something, but I was graduating from college. I wasn't part of it. And so I looked it up. The Pope was coming to Denver, inviting all the young people of the world. And so I thought, okay, that's great. But you didn't answer my question, Lord, is what am I supposed to do with my life? Like, what's my mission in life? What am I supposed to do when I graduate? Um, so I kept praying and every day I was praying the same prayer. I woke up on Good Friday and I had the same experience. I felt God said to me, go to World Youth Day in Denver and there your mission in life will begin. So I thought, okay, all right, that's all he's going to tell me. I, that's, there's no more, no more detail. And so all my friends are graduating and they're becoming engineers, getting jobs with 3M and Honeywell up in Minneapolis. And, um, you know, they're, they're doing all these things. They're like, what are you doing? I'm going to World Youth Day in Denver. <laughs> 
and they were kind of baffled by that, but I really had no other plans. So on graduation, I moved to Colorado. A friend of mine had lived in Colorado in the, in the mountains in Crested Butte. Uh, and so I thought, well, let's just move up there for the summer so we're close enough to get to Denver for World Youth Day because the three previous summers, I had worked in the Bering Sea and, uh, and in, on land in Alaska in the fishing industry to make money for, for flight school because that was expensive. So I spent time up there. Okay, so going back to uh, Colorado. So I spent the three summers up in Alaska. So we moved to Colorado. When we weren't in the Bering Sea and we were living um, in Seward, Alaska, we lived in a tent. So I lived in a tent all three summers. Um, and it was nice and, and cold <laughs> up there, cold and wet all the time. I didn't see the sun one, one summer at all. <laughs> um, it just didn't come out. So we moved to Colorado and we find a place on public land, three miles outside of, uh, outside of town. And we're literally living in a tent down by the river because that was the only place to live. And uh, we had no place to go. We got a job peeling logs. So they're building log cabins and, and you need to, uh, in the old, those days you would peel the bark off the logs with a, a handheld blade and some handles. And we got paid by the foot and it was backbreaking labor. And we were in good shape at that time. We ended up a couple weeks there and that was just, we couldn't do it. We weren't making enough money, just enough for gas and food. And that was it. But that wasn't, we weren't going to survive. So I started praying and I was asking God, you know, I don't know. I got to get out of here. We got to make some money. Um, I got to do something. So I went and prayed at the, uh, the, local, um, the local church. It was a communion service. And there was a lady who was giving the communion service, a middle-aged couple. And then there was me. And so afterwards, I spoke with this couple. And I was, because we were decided the next day we we're going to move to Alaska. We're getting out of here. We're going to go make some money. And uh, afterwards, I spoke with these three people. And this couple was so nice. They were asking me questions. What are we doing? And how, you know, you know, are you living here? They were inviting me over. They found out I lived in a tent. They're like, why don't you come to our house and, you know, take a shower if you want? Because we didn't really have that opportunity <laughs> living in a tent. So I walked away from there thinking, this is the first nice thing that's happened to me, the first good thing. And uh, I ended up looking back. I was looking back at the church and I was thinking, you know, if I leave now and go to Alaska, I'm not coming back. I'm not going to make it to World Youth Day. And I look back at the church and there's a rainbow shining right down onto the church. Like the church is right in the middle of the end of the rainbow. And it wasn't like, oh, a miracle. Maybe it was like a Steubenville miracle. Oh, miracle. <laughs> I thought to myself, you know, God brought me here to Crested Butte, and I'm trying to leave. So I said, okay, Lord, I will stay. I will stay here. But you got to find us a job. <laughs> My friend John was with me. And you got to find us a place to live. And, uh, and, and you got to do it fast, please, because <laughs> this isn't working. And so I go and tell my friend John, uh, he didn't come to the church with me. I told him, we're ready to go to Alaska the next day. And I told him, let's just stay. And he's like, what? We're going to Alaska tomorrow. I'm like, I will find a job. We'll find a place to live. And he argued for about 10 seconds. And he's like, oh, okay. Because he had no plans in life either at the time. So we stuck around. Next day, we get a job. We, we walk up to the Grand Butte Hotel. And, I, and we walk into HR. And we get a job on the spot. They hired us. I became the maid. So I was a room cleaner in, uh, in the Grand Butte Hotel in Crested Butte, and it was fantastic. It was indoors. <laughs> I wasn't breaking my back. Um, I grew up with a family of eight kids, so cleaning was not a big deal. John got a job painting rooms. So he was one room at a time. He would take everything down, paint the room as they were renovating. And then the second, third day, uh, we met the guy, the laundry boy, who would take all my dirty linens off my cart and put off clean towels and sheets and stuff. And uh, his name was Davies from Georgia. And uh, he, he asked us, where are you living? He said, we live in a tent down by the river. And, and he was flabbergasted. He's like, well, what do you mean? It's cold out there. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's all we got. And so he said, I'm living in the, uh, the executive suite here at the Granby Hotel. And there's another bedroom. You guys can spend the summer there. And we're like, how does the laundry boy 
afford the executive suite at the Grand Butte Hotel <laughs> while he's, you know, while he's working. And he said, oh, my daddy's good friends with the owner of the resort. And uh, I came here to be a CEO and my training started in the laundry room. <laughs> so he put me up in the executive suite for the summer. It was another instance in my life where God was saying, trust me, jump off this cliff and I'll catch you. And so we said, okay, Lord, but please, you know, please catch us, find us a place to live, find us a job. And so we went from a, a tent down by the river to the executive suite in three days. <laughs> but it wasn't until we jumped off that cliff and, and let God catch us that, that that actually happened. And it seems to always be the case. So we ended up um, going to World Youth Day. John, he was Catholic, hadn't been to Mass maybe since um, confirmation in eighth grade, hadn't been to confession since that time. Um, and he was kind of baffled by me going to Mass every Sunday and, and during the week when I could, um, and even praying the rosary. I met this couple, and they saw me the next day, and they're like, oh, I thought you were going to Alaska. I said, no, we changed our mind. We're staying here. And they're like, oh, that's wonderful. And they invited me over for dinner. And so went over for dinner, and we prayed the rosary, and we chatted. Um, and they invited me over on a regular basis to go over there and pray with them and have dinner, which was really nice. So just before uh, World Youth Day, I got a call from, the, from this lady. She said, our daughter is coming to World Youth Day uh, with her youth group, from her young adult group from uh, Arizona. And she's moving home after that here to Crested Butte. She needs a ride. Can you give her a ride? So I said, sure, yeah. Um, so we kind of made the arrangements to figure out where the group was staying. And so John and I show up at World Youth Day. We drive into Denver on August 11th and go to this house, knock on the door, and the door opens. And there she is, the one who will be with me for the rest of my life. And it was like that. It was like, wow. <laughs> and I, I had forgotten about that message in a sense. Um, it was kind of in my journal, but I hadn't looked at it in a long time. So we found out where they were staying. John and I took off for the next few days and went around and then came back there on the, the last day on the 15th to pick her up, bring her back. Because we, I had been taken out of my place in Minnesota, out of my, from away from my friends, and, and she had been taken out of uh, her place and brought to the same place in this very small town. And so we, we fell in love very quickly and not wanting to uh, rush anything. I waited 90 days till I asked her to marry me. Because, uh, <laughs> I didn't want to uh, you know, be rash or anything. And then we, uh, we got married uh, five months later after the season. So World Youth Day in Denver was such, had such a great impact on us and our life so that we, we decided we wanted to go to the next World Youth Day in Manila, in the Philippines. And so we saved, we made rosaries and we were selling rosaries to make money. And um, we ended up making just enough to get our flights. And then uh, we, we booked a, a room over there and kind of trying to make this work. We'd never really traveled that way before, um, but we made it down there and it was just an, an amazing experience, very different than Denver. Uh, and I realized later that every World Youth Day has its own flavor, its own character because of where it's being hosted in the host nation, um, the culture, and the, um, just the circumstances surrounding the whole event. But, you know, John Paul II was, he always loved working with young people and going to the young people. And, uh, and he was definitely having a grand, grand old time <laughs> in Manila. And so we ended up after that, after World Youth Day uh, in Manila, I came back and that's when I was hired as a teacher at St. Joseph Academy uh, here in San Marcos um, as their first teacher in 1995. And taught there for seven years. And out of that experience, I started taking my students. Literally on day one, we had I was teaching all these different subjects and classes, and we only had two books to start with because they were still gathering stuff. The school was just opening. And so I was telling them stories most of the time, <laughs> uh, adventures of travel and, and other things, adventures of the faith. 
And I told him, if you work hard and study hard, um, I'll take you to the next World Youth Day in Paris. Uh, and so we, we spent the next two years working on that, preparing and, and getting these kids ready, took them to the World Youth Day in Paris, uh, and then took the next group of kids to the World Youth Day in Rome. And this is how it got started. After a number of years, taking them and then, and then going full time into pilgrimage, because um, as my family was growing, uh, and I saw that the impact of, of the pilgrimage was, was incredible. Now, I can have an impact in the classroom, and all good teachers do, but the impact I could have in, on a pilgrimage was I, I took the amount of time, you know, down to a week or two, and the impact was incredible. So I thought I should do this for more people. This is a, a way to reach more um, in a more significant way. Other churches and schools started asking me, can you take our kids? Can you take our school? Um, we, we see what's happening with yours. And so it kind of grew organically out of that. And, and I've been doing that full time for 20 years now since I left um, teaching. But now I get to teach overseas or wherever the pilgrimages are. So World Youth Day itself. Um, World Youth Day was started by John Paul II in the 80s uh, as a way to capture the spirit of the youth. So he understood that the, the whole was greater than the sum of the parts, that if you could bring young people together and they would see the, the zeal and the joy, um, it would inspire them to, to greater things. Because he knew that the only way to inspire young people is to call them to heroic virtue, right? A life that's not easy, right? But a life that is good. And, and he understood this uh, instinctively with all his work with young people back in Poland. Um, he wanted to bring together a gathering of young people and the Vatican advised against it. Absolutely not. Don't do this. Big disaster. Young people will not come. They don't want to see you or anybody else, you know, in the church. You have to basically, you know, use kid gloves with them. And he said, no, we will, we will gather. You invite them. They will come. And, and he was right. And the Vatican... Um, I've heard the Vatican doesn't like to baptize. The Vatican likes to confirm. They don't like to start new initiatives in case they fail because then it makes them look bad. So he came in there and kind of shook things up and started some new initiatives, which is very unusual um, at that level. Um, but he did it anyway. He didn't, he didn't listen to their, <laughs> their corporate culture in the sense. And he said, no, we're going to do this. So now it's part of that. You know, they know this is successful. And it was wildly successful from the very beginning um, and there were naysayers for 10 years. Every time a world youth was going to another nation, they're like, oh, don't, don't try it in France. They'll never, they're not going to show up. Or don't try it in that country. Um, and they were wrong every time. And so now they, they, don't, they don't say that anymore. They understand. Um, so sometimes people ask me, what's the impact of World Youth Day? What is, what is the impact it has? And my, my answer is usually, ask me in 100 years, and I'll tell you how many saints went to World Youth Day and how many lives were impacted that we can see now looking back. Because even, even now, in our lifetime, I was listening to um, Cardinal Dolan was talking about when he was the rector of the North American Seminary in Rome, he said that he talked to all the new seminarians every year. More than 50% had their vocation discovered or a turning point happened at World Youth Day. And it could have been any of the World Youth Days. Um, it wasn't a single one in particular. In Denver, when the Holy Father arrived, 1993 was known as the summer of crime in, in Colorado. In Denver, its crime was skyrocketing and it was just... I was living in Colorado that summer, so it was in the news all the time. So when the Holy Father arrived, there were very big concerns. All these young people coming in and all this crime around. Violent crime, when the Holy Father was there, violent crime dropped 100% during the four or five days he was there. 100%, not a single violent crime anywhere in the city. And after he left, it went back up, but only up to 70% of where it was. And then it was going down ever since. And it's been going down ever since. I don't know about this last year. You know, the, the, the world's kind of crazy this past year. Um, but 
that was, um, that was an immediate impact in Denver. It happens in every city that World Youth Day goes to. Um, vocations, they had eight seminarians in Denver at the time. Uh, within several years, they had 120, which is not unusual in a city that hosts World Youth Day. You know, people find their vocations, like I found my spouse, <laughs> I found my wife there at World Youth Day. My wife looked back at one point and we had been, I'd been taking students to World Youth Day and then I started doing this full time. And she said, you know, those two messages you received were actually two different things. I thought, well, I meet someone, my mission in life begins, you know, marriage and our life together, this is our mission. And she said, but actually you received the, the mission of taking people on pilgrimage. And, and you didn't really realize it at the time because it, it took years to unfold. But that's where my mission in life began at World Youth Day. And she kind of, you know, pointed that out and then saw that. And it was true. And so we've been married 28 years. Uh, we have nine children. Uh, we've been very blessed. People ask, you know, they, people get real concerned about having children or, you know, can we afford this? And, um, but, you know, if a child is a blessing from God, we tell them there's, you don't, you don't want to deny God's blessings, right? God wants to bless you. You take any blessings he'll give you, right? He'll, he'll always um, take care of you. Some of the things about World Youth Day um, I wanted to mention, there are things that happen at World Youth Day. So what is it about World Youth Day that opens the heart? You know, people see things, the, the spirit of the youth, the Holy Father was trying to capture. When, when two or three are gathered, or I should say when two or three million are gathered in his name, <laughs> the Holy Spirit is very powerfully working in the people, right, when, in what's happening. And there are, there are many, many conversions of heart. There are miracles of nature that happen on a regular basis. You know, it's small ones and big ones. So you're walking on to the pilgrimage to the final events and it's a 10 mile walk and it's through the fields and someone just completely twists their ankle and they, it may even be broken. They can't, they can't walk. It's not uncommon. Um, I've had a number of groups do this that they're like, okay, what are we gonna do? You know, do we find the medical people? Do we carry this person? Someone says, no, let's pray. Let's pray over them. And they all lay hands on this person and they pray over them and they're in, immediately healed. And they're all celebrating for about two minutes and they get up and walk the next five miles. It's amazing, it's really awesome, but it's, it's also pretty common. And you gotta go on, right? You gotta go on. Uh, one of our pilgrims was a chaperone and he had been suffering from Parkinson's disease for about 10 years and we were in Sydney. If it was cold or it was a little stressful, he had a lot of shakes, right? Very shaky. And, and he, he was there with his daughter, who was one of the pilgrims. So they went to visit the shrine of, of Blessed Mary MacKillop. Uh, who is now St. Mary McKillop. So Blessed Mary at the time in North Sydney. And he went in there with the group and he went inside and he said, I just want to pray. And he put his hands down on her tomb and he, he said, Lord, I have never asked, but if you want to heal me through the intercession of Saint, uh, Blessed Mary McKillop, please heal me now. And, and he felt that warm sensation come from his hands through his body. And he was immediately and instantly completely healed of Parkinson's. And he didn't tell anybody immediately because he was kind of stunned <laughs> by this and so they're out the next day um, at one of the events and um, they're they're doing something and he's holding his daughter's hand and she all of a sudden realizes you're not shaking and he said he's like no god healed me yesterday completely and uh, and i know this guy his name is ricky and i see him once he's from kansas city i see him once in a while because he has launched his own apostolate to, to teach young people about the saints, uh, to, to have a relationship with the saints. And, and yeah, Rick, it's, this has been like 14 years now, and Ricky's doing great. <laughs> Ricky's doing well. So there are small miracles, there are big miracles of nature. But I've heard it said, and I've seen this um, to be true, that opening your heart 
to the grace of God, to allow God to enter, is an infinitely greater miracle than a miracle of nature. Right? The miracles of nature, um, when, when people are healed or people are raised from the dead, are really only there to, uh, they're kind of there for the wow factor. Right? God just wants to wake us up and lets us know that he's there and he can do this, right? But what about those people who have been raised from the dead? Where are they now? They're dead. Right? They died again. Right? Because that wasn't the point. The point was to, to people to see and understand the power of God and what he is promising. And so the miracles of grace um, are far greater. So in places like Lourdes, they're, they're miracles of nature and they record these things and there are far mi- more miracles of nature than they actually record. I actually know a, a significant number of people who have been miraculously healed from cancer and other things in Lourdes and it was never recorded. They didn't want to go through the rigmarole of having the whole thing recorded. But the miracles of, of grace are uncountable. So many people, so many hearts are touched. And this is the, the significance of the pilgrimage that God knocks at our door, right? He stands at the door and knocks and we have to invite him to enter. But at the same time, God himself doesn't reveal himself to everyone just willy-nilly. God wants to be pursued. He wants us to pursue him, right? And, and he loves it when we do this. If God revealed himself to everybody who, who just walked by, then everybody would be faithful, right? And everybody would have this relationship. But no, he wants to be pursued. And going on a pilgrimage is something we do physically in pursuit of God, in pursuit of knowledge of God. And God rewards that generously, uh, tremendously. It's a prayer that he always answers. We want to know God. We want to know God better. We make this physical effort to know him better. He will reward that and he'll respond. He always does. So there are incidences of, I guess you could say, divine providence or holy coincidence. Uh, Simon talked about one that that happened recently with our our trip to Fatima. There was a big disaster in LAX and uh, the devil didn't want us to get there. (laughs) Our group didn't make it that day. And then trying to figure out another way to get there and it was just impossible. It was not going to happen. Everything was booked, solid, completely solid. And then providentially, we needed, I think, um, 38 seats. So providentially, the security checkers uh, at the airports in Germany all went on strike for one day. And so all the Germans couldn't get into the airport to fly to their destinations, but those who were coming in from overseas could make their connections. There were 38 Germans who canceled their flights to Lisbon so that we could take those spots and get on those um, seats that day. Like it was the next day, right? <laughs> exactly 38 seats through two airports, through Frankfurt and Munich, um, but that was it. And so that type of situation is not uncommon. Um, and I see it all the time, even from the very beginning in Denver, when we're sitting there, my friend John, he wants to meet another friend of his who's coming in. And we don't know exactly where he is. There's seven or 800,000 people in this crowd and it's nighttime. And we're like, uh, how are we going to find your, you know, this guy? And John himself, who had not been to Mass, hadn't been to confession, hadn't been to prayer, had this experience at World Youth Day where I took him to adoration and, and he was absolutely floored. And he went to confession that night and then he wanted me to teach him how to pray the rosary. And so here we are two or three days later and John says, let's pray. <laughs> I was like, okay, what, what we're going to ask for a miracle here? <laughs> Lord, help us find. Yeah, he's like, yeah, let's pray. So we started praying that God would send this guy to us. And literally five seconds later, this guy walks up, big smile on his face. He's like, hey, I found you guys right in the middle of this crowd. 
I was amazed and astounded, and, and so was John. And, and this guy had no idea what was going on. He's just like, oh, I found him. But those t- kind of things um, happen all the time. And so it's a little bit like um, someone who has the charism of healing. They see miraculous healings on a regular basis, and they're amazed, and they're in wonder, and they're, they're grateful, but they're not surprised that those things happen. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing that I see. I'm amazed, and I'm in wonder, and I'm grateful, but I'm not surprised because it happens all the time. You know, these one in a million things happen a lot <laughs> when it comes to relying on God's providence to, to make things work out. I know this one family, they're from Alaska, and they keep very low profile, but he wants to bring his family to World Youth Day every time. And so uh, at one time, I actually met this guy. My wife and I met him in Manila, in the Philippines, and he was single at the time. And uh, he was wearing this, this almost like a long cassock hair shirt type thing. And he came there to see the Holy Father. He had no registration, no place to stay, no nothing, no money, just showed up. And he was certain that God would provide. And so we get to the information table at the airport and they ask us where we're going. We said, we have this room. So they take us, they send us on a taxi. This guy has no place to stay. And we're sitting there kind of in wonder, like what, this guy doesn't, he's just going to sleep on the street. <laughs> and the, the kid at the behind the table is like, you don't have a place to stay? You're not registered? Oh, you stay with my uncle. I call my uncle. And so <laughs> the uncle, you know, like my uncle come and get you. And then we didn't see this guy until the end of the week. At the end of the week, um, we saw him at the vigil. Now there's four or five million people at the vigil in Manila. And we run into this guy, John Eric Thompson. There he is in his hair shirt, <laughs> you know, his cassock. And uh, we're like, John, how, you know, John Eric, how was your week? He's like, oh, World Youth Day's been wonderful, but it's really not the experience I expected. And I'm like, really? What, what happened? He's like, well, this, this, this family took me in and, and I think they took me to the biggest mansion in the city and they've been driving me around in a limousine all week. And all the servants called me father. And we're like, no, 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 that's, I'm not father. Like, okay, father, would you like something to eat, father? Is he... <laughs> like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not a priest. <laughs> He's like, I was treated like royalty. I'm not used to that. <laughs> so God took care of him. Years later, uh, I run into this guy again at World Youth Day. He rolls into Sydney and same thing. This time he's got a wife and some kids and they've got no money, no place to stay, no registration, no nothing. And so at that time, I put him up. I took them in. I fed them. I did all this stuff and and got them all taken care of. And and pretty much every World Youth Day since, (laughs) you know, he rolls in, same thing, relying on divine providence. And so one thing that I realized is that divine providence, because I rely also on divine providence. And I know that when you cooperate with God's grace, you can become the instrument of his providence, right? Because John Eric Thompson's providence usually comes out of my pocket. (laughs) He's like, oh, God provided. (laughs) But if we're open to that, then we can be that instrument of God's providence. And I think God is asking all of us to do that and to be that, right? To be his instruments. And and even recently um, through COVID, when things were extraordinarily difficult for us with pilgrimages and we lost everything. Everything was down, down the drain. People came forward and I know that the, and everyone who came forward and providentially helped us out, carried us through, uh, we are just eternally grateful for all of the, um, the help we received, um, the love we received, the concern, the care, everything, right? And, and we were on the receiving end again of that. We're really grateful for that. I guess if you ask yourself, what about those difficult times? You know, what about those times? And maybe, maybe we, we are too comfortable here in exile. <laughs> maybe we are, you know, God wants to uh, jar us a little bit or, or send us to the promised land, which is going to be hard. <laughs> it's going to be tough. 
And sometimes he just wants us to be on that receiving end, um, to allow others to be his providence, to, to do his, his work also. And so even to receive, it's humbling to receive, but it's also you have to allow other people to, to give as well. So looking back at those words that were seared onto my heart in the very beginning, each one of them, as I look back, has significant meaning. Here I am, Lord. And so when I say that here I am, right now here I am in San Diego, but I, here is all over the world. Wherever I go, he wants me in Lisbon, he wants me in Sydney and Rio, he wants me wherever it is. It's always, you know, he takes me to a place. Is it I, Lord? You know, always asking that question, are you still calling me? Are you still, you know, beckoning me? I've heard you calling in the night. And, and he always calls me in the night. <laughs> he always gives me those, those, uh, those messages in the night. I will go, Lord, where you lead me, which could be anywhere on earth. I will hold your people in my heart. And these are my pilgrims, right? My people that God has given to me and to entrusted to me into my care. The, the pilgrimage experience in general, the pilgrimage experience with me and, and how I see it and how it's kind of become deeply embedded in my life. And even though I'm not lost, um, I still wander. <laughs> I do. So thank you very much. Thank you, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Breakthrough of Grace podcast. Feel free to check the show notes for discussion questions and thoughts for further reflection. Before we return to the pace and cadence of our day, I encourage you to pause. What of Steve's talk spoke to you? How is God stirring something in your soul? You can find out more about Steve and JMJ Youth at jmjyouth.com. We are praying for you, our listeners. We look forward to having you join us on a future episode as people describe their ordinary lives transformed by God's extraordinary graces. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Breakthrough of Grace podcast. We're a small word of mouth movement. Can we ask you to share it with a friend? Please see our show notes and website for discussion questions and other resources. Until next time, may God bless you, keep you, and make his face shine upon you.